Hey everyone, before we kick off season two, I wanted to give you a rundown of how this season is going to unfold. I'm going to try to get an episode out once a month, and as you can imagine, it takes a while to read, record, edit, and produce this podcast. Rather than take an even more extended break to finish off all eight episodes, I'm going to send them out as we finish each one. Thanks again to everyone for all of your support. I hope you enjoy this show. Okay, here we go. Season two. How important is art? Most think it's not a necessity, it's a luxury. In times of crisis, it's an afterthought. When schools face budget issues, the arts are on the chopping block well before the core curriculum of math, science, and writing. Art is merely a representation of life, an icing on the cake, but not the cake. But when darkness is growing and there's no end in sight, color can save us. Art can save us. Miami, the sun-kissed, golden paradise on the coast, wasn't always so. As the 1980s approached, the oceanside paradise of Miami was descending into darkness. The buildings were crumbling, and crime was exploding. The magic city had run out of magic. Paradise was lost. Thankfully, an army of heroes came to the rescue. Their weapons? Colors, imagination, cameras, and some fresh coats of paint. The magicians that gave Miami back its magic first gave the citizens an image of what Miami could be. Sometimes, life imitates art and not the other way around. This is the story of how a ragtag group of architecture nerds, bohemian-style artists, and small-time community activists saw beauty in a decaying neighborhood. This is the story of how a Hollywood portrayal came to pass. This is the story of the magicians that saved Miami. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. What pushes the history of America forward? What surges society into new frontiers? Over and over again, seismic shifts in our country can be traced to mass migration. From the expansion westward into the untamed wild, to the great migration from the south, escaping the tyranny of Jim Crow, to the endless fleets of boats carrying the Irish away from famine and into the docks of Ellis Island. Waves of travelers create ripples in society. Sometimes, these ripples can be shockwaves. More often than not, our greatest cities have felt the brunt of these shockwaves. As writer T.D. Allman notes in an editorial, for better and for worse, quote, America was created in cities. Independence Hall, Bunker Hill, the slave markets of Jamestown, the counting houses of New York, the stockyards of Chicago 
the dream factories of Los Angeles, end quote. But as the gears of time continued to grind, there was a slow but seismic shift in America. FDR's New Deal literally paved the way out of the cities. The National Highway Program created easy access for Americans traveling between the great metropolises. We came out of World War II with flying colors, and the middle class exploded. GI bills, the 30-year mortgage, and mass production techniques made single-family homes affordable to the masses. From the generation that grew up in the Great Depression, that stormed the beaches of Normandy, and fought through Europe and the South Pacific, owning a single-family home was an unimaginable luxury. The American dream manifested itself into a single-family house with a white picket fence, a manicured lawn, two-and-a-half children, and a dog. It was such a pleasant image that Disneyland's Main Street, the entranceway to all of Walt's wondrous creations, was based on his hometown of Marceline, Missouri. This community of about 5,200 residents, two hours northeast of Metro Kansas City, was what Walt wanted to share with the world. This was the comforting nostalgia of the small-town paradise he grew up in. The rise of the suburbs inevitably meant the decline of the cities. And as we've said many times in this podcast, it can be a bad case of tunnel vision to consider a specific time period a quote-unquote golden age. The common perception arose that these emptied-out cities were merely crime-laden havens for undesirables. The dirt, hustle, noise, and smell of the cities was frowned upon by the cookie-cutter conformity of Pleasantville, USA. As Altman noted, Quote, cities were where America's trash got dumped. Suburbs were where the nice people went. End quote. Bright sun, blue water, carefree gaiety everywhere you travel. These are the real high spots of Florida that make it America's playland. The sun-kissed paradise of Miami, Florida was no different. Like most cities, it ebbed and flowed through the waves of time. But Miami's specific location along our southern shores made its history unique. It was a seaport to all of the foreign lands of Central and South America, as well as the island nations of the Caribbean. That's why it always featured prominently in the import of foreign goods to the consumer-obsessed North Americans. It was a haven for rum runners in the Prohibition era. Narcotics told the same story. When cocaine blew up in the 1970s and 80s, it was smuggled through the shores of South Beach. In addition to America's ever-swaying trends, Miami would feel the aftershock of foreign events as well. The uprisings and unstable nature of its neighbors to the south would inevitably reverberate to the shores of Miami. The whims of a dictator or revolutionary could have vast repercussions on South Florida and its surrounding area. One such event is where we begin our story. Cuba, 1980. Fidel Castro's communist vice grip had taken its toll on its citizens as well as its economy. Thousands of Cuban refugees from several generations awaited their families and loved ones on the shores of Miami. These were the lucky ones, the ones who escaped to Florida prior to Castro's revolution. These refugees were able to reach free soil as the tentacles of Castro's communist regimen tightened over Cuba. Those who didn't make it out yearned to escape. Many got desperate, some got creative. In April that year, the steaming humidity of central Havana was the perfect atmosphere for an international incident. 
Embassies are an odd institution, if you think about it. A small slice of a distant country dropped smack in the thick of another country's metropolis. Even within a small island nation like Cuba, there were borders. The foreign nation may only be a small building, but in Cuba it could mean freedom. This was the case with the Peruvian embassy. Like an actual border, it was heavily guarded by native troops. On that steamy day in April, five Cubans decided to make a break for this border. They armed themselves, commandeered a bus, and sped straight to the gates of the Peruvian embassy. Cuban guards spotted their approach, cocked their machine guns, and opened fire. The hijackers fired back, the bus barreled through the blockade, and into the arms of the Peruvian government. One Cuban guard was killed in the crossfire. Safely inside the embassy, the five Cuban hijackers pleaded for political asylum. Castro demanded they be returned to face a swift and vengeful punishment for the death of his guard. The Peruvians refused. The five Cubans were granted their asylum. Rumors soon began to swirl that asylum was being granted to any Cubans that could make it into the Peruvian embassy. Even better, Castro was allowing this to happen. This was technically true, but Castro was a fox, and his enemies walked right into his trap. Further rumors were being spread that Castro's guards were nowhere to be seen around the embassy. Cubans began to flood the entranceway. Soon, 10,000 people entered the half-acre compound in search of asylum. Once the embassy was filled to the brim, Castro's guards miraculously returned. But instead of keeping Cubans out, they locked them in. 10,000 people within the tight quarters of the embassy was a recipe for a major problem. There were not enough water, food, or lavatories to handle the crowd. The Red Cross arrived off the Cuban shores to offer some relief, but Castro refused them access. The old fox had turned this asylum into a prison. As the days rolled past, the plight of those trapped in the embassy became an international scandal. President Jimmy Carter pleaded with Castro to allow the asylum seekers to leave the island. After several days of negotiations, Castro relented. The refugees would be granted asylum and allowed to exit the country. This seemed like a huge win against Castro's oppressive tactics. Cuban people and their families in the United States rejoiced. He broadcast to Florida's Cuban Americans a time and place to pick up their family and friends, the Mariel Harbor in western Cuba. Cuban exiles from Miami to the Keys scrambled to launch their freedom boats, often any vessel capable of floating. A makeshift fleet of skiffs and dinghies soon arrived at the Mariel Harbor. Over the next several days, waves of Cubans arrived on the shores of Florida. Castro continued to allow the mass exodus. Anyone who wanted to leave Cuba was more than welcome to catch a boat at Mariel Harbor. Refugees began arriving in Florida by the thousands, and the local government had trouble handling the influx. Eventually, the pleas of the local government were heard by President Jimmy Carter, and the order was given to not accept any further boats. Castro ignored the order. He shuffled more Cubans into the overcrowded boats and sent them to Florida. When the Mariel Harbor finally closed in September, over 125,000 Cubans made it to South Florida. Even more Haitians arrived during this window, as they correctly guessed the Coast Guard would be too exasperated to monitor the coastline. While the local government struggled to process the mass of new residents, Castro's treachery began to reveal itself. The old fox had played another trick. Unsurprisingly, his rationale for releasing the asylum seekers wasn't the least bit altruistic. Instead, he took the opportunity to purge his country of all its undesirable citizens. He emptied his prisons and mental health facilities. 
Hidden among the refugees leaving the Mariel Harbor were murderers, career criminals, and anyone else the Cuban government sought to get rid of. Castro reportedly boasted to his brother, quote, if they want them, they can have them. I will flush my toilets, end quote. Among South Florida's sudden tidal wave of immigrants, known to Floridians as Mariolitos, it was estimated that almost 25,000 had criminal records, of which 5,000 were considered hardened criminals, and over 100 of which had murder convictions. When local authorities attempted to deport several of the major criminals, a detention center was burned to the ground. In the first 12 months following the boat lift, crime skyrocketed 600%. 53 Mariolitos were charged for murder during this time, with many more brought in for various sexual and violent crimes. The Mariel boat lift could not have come at a worse time for Miami. The beach had been slowly declining for more than a decade, and crime had been rising. Cheap air travel and package tours to Europe, Hawaii, and new, lush Mexican and Caribbean resorts had siphoned off hordes of tourists. With legal gambling and newer hotels, Las Vegas had supplanted the beach for travelers who wanted top-flight entertainment. To make matters worse, in December 1979, an African-American salesman and former Marine fled the police on a motorcycle at high speeds, leading them on an eight-minute chase, often through residential areas. When the police finally caught him, they pulled out their nightsticks and, according to the prosecutor, cracked his head like an egg. The coroner confirmed he died of multiple skull fractures. The officers then tampered with the crime scene to cover up their brutality. The ensuing trial went exactly as these instances usually go. Despite a preponderance of wrongdoing, an all-white jury did not convict, and all of the accused officers walked. Once again, a black man was beaten to death and no justice was served. Neighborhoods rioted upon hearing news of the acquittals, and parts of the city soon burned. In 72 hours, three people lay dead on the street, over 400 lay bleeding, and over $100 million of destruction had fallen on Miami. While the city was still reeling and trying to gather itself in the aftermath of the worst riots it had ever witnessed, the boats from Mariel came sailing into their harbors. Miami Beach Commissioner Alex Dowd bemoaned, quote, Mariel was like pouring gasoline on a fire. Murder, rape, burglary, kidnapping, assault and battery, muggings, home invasions. We were reeling out of control. Our police force was overwhelmed. The city's services were besieged. Narcotics were being dealt openly in the park, on street corners, and in the back of stores. We ranked among the top 10 cities in the nation for murder and violent crime. And South Beach's elderly were easy victims. The city where I was born was not the one I knew and loved. Miami Beach was a mess." End quote. Dowd, who was new to his position when the boat lift turned his world upside down, wanted to see the aftermath firsthand. He asked the chief of police if he could join a black and white on a night patrol. What followed was hours and hours of the worst things he had ever witnessed. Domestic disputes, bloody bodies in alleys, high-speed chases. One night, his driver swerved to narrowly miss a body lying in the gutter. To Dowd's horror, he realized he recognized the body. It was his friend Elise, an elderly, impoverished woman he had befriended years earlier while volunteering. Upon meeting her, a friendship had bloomed, 
and he often checked up on her and brought her food and made sure her housing situation was in order. Elise bore a number tattoo on her forearm. She was a Holocaust survivor. Dowd was an emotional wreck as he held her in the alley, trying to comfort her while listening to her pleas for help. Quote, her face was battered and bloody, and her clothes were in tatters, Dowd recalled. I didn't know what to do. I kept staring at her tattoo. I kept thinking she survived the Nazis, only to end up beaten and raped and tossed aside like a piece of garbage in South Beach. End quote. After loading Elise into an ambulance, a call went out over the police wire. The suspects had been spotted. Dowd was soon on the scene with another unit. The suspects refused to stop, and when approached, they attacked the cops. Dowd and his fellow officers, filled with rage, running on pure adrenaline, subdued the suspects with all of the force they could muster. But the forceful takedown of the three criminals did not satisfy their lust for vengeance. They began to beat the living hell out of them. Quote, it was a desperate act by desperate and angry men. The justice system in South Beach had failed. The criminals were winning. At that moment, I hated these men. I hated Castro for releasing these sadistic animals in our town. I wanted only raw revenge, end quote. In corporate offices across the nation, no one wanted to be transferred to South Florida. Rumor had it that the welcome wagon had treads and gun ports, and there was AIDS in the drinking water. Quality of life was perceived to be akin to a combat zone. On Interstate 95, especially in the lanes heading north from Miami, a common bumper sticker read, Will the last Americans leaving Miami please turn out the lights? The cover of Time magazine, 1981, pasted the headline, Paradise Lost. Inside, it recounted the rise of drugs, poverty, and violent crime in Miami. Tourists soon stopped arriving. Another popular bumper sticker joked, Please come back to Miami. We weren't shooting at you. Despite the constant gloom of the nightly news and the ever-growing body count, an event in 1983 offered a glimmer of light, a vibrant pink hue of color floating in the bay. Eleven small islands right off the coast were given a shimmering, luminous pink wrapping. This was an event titled The Surrounded Islands, a contemporary art project by a Bulgarian-American artist named Christo. Who says there's nothing new under the sun? Not Christo, not this morning. To the gold of sunrise in the blue of Biscayne Bay, the Bulgarian-American artist added yet another color, pink. Yards and yards of pink polypropylene fabric slowly unfolding from floating cocoons, turning 11 obscure islands into giant pink lily pads, turning Miami into the focal point of the entire art world. The floating pink woven fabric covered the surface of the water around the islands, extending over 200 feet from the island shores into the bay. In total, this pleasant new color tone covered over seven miles of area. Hundreds of workers contributed to the exhibit, and it was completely funded by the works of local artists. Engineers, marine biologists, consultants, and building contractors also pitched in their expertise to execute this vision. Quote, Christo's melding of contemporary art and nature in a luminous pink motif signaled the change in the perception of the city. End quote. Citizens could view the surreal pink hues of the exhibit from the causeways, the bay, and the coast. This was a harbinger of things to come. Despite all of the violence, the beauty of Miami could still rise. 
Paradise wasn't lost. It was in there somewhere, but only the most talented magicians would have the skill set to bring it out. Luckily, Miami had them in spades. It was the magic city after all. Tonight, we'll focus on two of the greatest ones. Among the struggling neighborhoods in Miami was South Beach, an area littered with old, decaying buildings constructed in the 1920s and 30s. The neighborhood's buildings shared a similar Art Deco style that was popular at the time of construction. The style, which originated in France just prior to World War I, represents grandeur, luxury, and exuberance. It was an appropriation of many older styles with the goal of a modern appearance. Bold geometric forms of cubism blended with bright colors and exotic styles of Persian and Asian influence. In its heyday, it sported rare and extortionate materials like ivory. After its peak in the late 1920s, it became more subdued during the Great Depression, often featuring sleek, shining curves and smooth polished surfaces. South Beach was rising during the peak of Art Deco architecture, and many of the structures exhibited these qualities. But time did not serve the neighborhood, or Art Deco, very well. The opulence of the structures was overshadowed by its lack of upkeep. The former grand hotels were now nursing homes and welfare centers. Historic districts and landmark statuses were reserved for classic architecture, and these buildings weren't close to being old enough to be considered classic. To many members of the greatest generation, the style of Art Deco reminded them of the Great Depression. Worse, many people didn't even know what the term Art Deco even meant. When told a building was Art Deco, an oft-repeated joking response was, Who is Art Deco? A prominent developer in South Beach once told the press, quote, I really don't find any beauty in Art Deco, but it might be that I'm short-sighted. Maybe I need glasses. Rose-colored glasses, end quote. With decades of neglect and Miami's freshly minted title as murder capital of the world, the local municipality sought revitalization through the only method they knew, tear down and redevelop. Even before the boat lift and the race riots, South Beach was primed for the wrecking ball. The only way to get people to invest their money in the neighborhood was to woo them with a sweeping dream of a brand new South Beach full of oceanfront condominiums, luxury resorts, and high-end retail. One firm pitched a $650 million recreation of Venice, with almost three miles of canals, complete with water taxis chauffeuring tourists around new hotels and outdoor cafes. The big players in real estate were eager to throw their names in the ring for South Beach. After all, during the planning stages of the new South Beach, quote, not a single property owner has spent money on a spare coat of paint, building repairs, or upkeep, end quote. A local real estate titan stated, quote, We had a great idea. It would have revitalized a neighborhood that was dying. We were saving an area no one wanted, end quote. Almost everyone agreed with him. Almost. A small handful of people had the foresight to see what was happening. These people also had a keen eye to sport beauty in a handful of decaying and dilapidated buildings. Welcome back to the fight, Rick. This time I know our side will win, Victor Laszlo tells Rick at the end of Casablanca. The reluctant hero has finally accepted his fate and thrown his hat in the ring. Sometimes you can't really choose the battles to fight, they choose you. One of the heroes of our story was never a reluctant warrior. 
but nonetheless, the battles she would be known for beckoned her through fate. Quote, My whole life had been Art Deco, she once said. I was born in the beginning of the period and grew up during the height of it. It's a thing of fate. End quote. What the hell was Art Deco anyway, she'd often hear. That was only the first battle she would have to win. Back in 1973, Barbara Capitman made sunny South Beach her home. She was in her 60s, short of stature and recently widowed. She was often mocked for her squeaky voice. Her attire could be considered peculiar, to say the least. Oddly enough, though known to wear tennis shoes and smock-like dresses, she had made a career as an editor for a style and design magazine. Luckily, resilience comes in many shapes and sizes. She was a warrior, armed with sharp intellect, a galvanizing charisma, and a relentless spirit. She was the perfect activist. But before she could preserve the Art Deco district, she had to make people aware it existed and convince them it was worth saving. I moved here in 1973 with my husband, who was a professor. We were very shocked at the way Miami was beginning to destroy its marvelous waterfront and beautiful palms and build big high-rises. And uh, eventually I got together with Leonard Horowitz and he said, why don't we get together a bunch of people who feel like we do and form a design organization to save what's left here. began with dragging around reporters on joyrides in her rickety old Dodge. She gave them personal tours of welfare hotels and retirement homes, always sure to point out the unique elements of the architecture. The reporters were obliged enough to cover her plight in the papers. Slowly but surely, support began to snowball. Her energy and charisma attracted a small but loyal squadron of fellow soldiers a motley crew of bohemians and activists, a dedicated group that either loved the challenge, loved South Beach, loved architecture, or all of the above. A friend and fellow activist once said of Capitman, quote, she was a master of smoke and mirrors. She could make people believe Art Deco was the biggest treasure they'd ever seen, end quote. Thus the Miami Design Preservation League was born, the first step in a long fight to preserve the Art Deco district. They galvanized the power of volunteer work to solicit grants, and they pleaded to both local and federal government to push legislation forward to preserve the district. After many months of battling, their efforts began to pay off. In 1979, the Art Deco District, consisting of 125 blocks and 800 buildings, was put on the National Register of Historic Places. It was the first 20th century historic district and the largest such zone in the country. While this was a huge victory, the war was far from over. Developers had the deeper pockets, and their tentacles reached every aspect of City Hall, from zoning to planning and development, and most importantly, demolition. They poured through every law and directive that pertained to development until they found a soft spot. Their other great ally was time, Though the Art Deco area was now designated as a historic district, it continued to reel. The buildings were still in dire need of rehabilitation, and no one was willing to invest their money in a dying neighborhood. If Capitman and her noble band could not find proof that a restored district was a feasible path to revitalization, public opinion could sway, 
and the wrecking balls would come. The fact was, the Art Deco district was among the poorest neighborhoods in the entire country. Many buildings had one toilet per floor, few apartments had kitchens, and almost none had air conditioning. Many residents were hungry and lining up outside service centers for a free meal. The higher-ups in the city were seizing this opportunity to promote the need to tear down and start anew. The neighborhood could not be turned in its current condition. Unless it was purged and rebuilt, it would continue to rot. One of these higher-ups in the city at this time was Alex Dowd, now the city commissioner. Later that year, 1979, Dowd was summoned to the penthouse of one of Miami's premier oceanfront condos, owned by the head of the redevelopment agency. As Dowd described, this man was the, quote, largest landowner in Miami Beach, the biggest taxpayer, and one of the wealthiest people around. He had friends in all the right places. He could attack you, finance a campaign against you. No one wanted to needlessly make an enemy of him, end quote. Dowd was informed that the commission was locked in a decision over the redevelopment of South Beach. The bigwig explained that the residents of South Beach were misguided in their resistance to change. The redevelopment agency was trying to save the beach, and this was the only option. He told Dowd this was the most important vote in the history of Miami. Dowd agonized over his decision. His initial vote was against demolition and redevelopment, but the problems of South Beach continued to haunt him. He changed his vote, allowing the redevelopment agency to open it to a public vote. In 1980, the resolution passed. Despite the registry on the national list, the wrecking balls were approved. What temporarily halted the demise of South Beach was not the efforts of the Preservation League, but the forces of capitalism. Opportunity can cut both ways. Spiking interest rates, lack of consumer confidence, and an economic recession stalled any immediate plans for redevelopment. The bulldozers were neutralized, but only temporarily. When the winds of investment once again turned, South Beach returned to the chopping block. Capitman and the Preservation League had to perform a miracle. Around the same time that Barbara Capitman was planting her feet with the Miami Preservation League, an established New Yorker was spending his vacation in Miami. With a couple of friends, he took a joyride through South Beach. He was an interior designer, and he had an eye for art and beauty, as well as a fascination with architecture. Like many, he was unimpressed by the look of the fading neighborhood. But then he saw it. He slammed on his brakes and leapt out of the car with exasperation. It's fabulous, he gleamed. The old Beacon Hotel towered above him in all of its art deco glory. Vivid memories of his childhood flooded back to his head. His family had spent their winters in Miami Beach. What he remembered were pristine hotels, robust palm trees, and a golden beach. And the colors, all the colors of the rainbow, a pastel paradise. Leonard Horowitz's time in New York City had run its course. He was almost 30, and his father had recently cut him off financially, strongly opposing Leonard's lifestyle. So Leonard took his talents to South Beach. There, he befriended Barbara Capitman, and the unlikely pair bonded over their love of all things Art Deco. They formulated a plan of how to restore the district. 
Horowitz pitched an idea to accentuate and highlight the aspects of the buildings that made them uniquely Art Deco. How to do this? With color. He created a 40 color palette to use. Quote, I formulated my palette on the basis of sunset, sunrise, the summer and winter oceans, and sand on the beach, which used to be much more golden. They all are natural sources, and they are the same ones that the original designers used. Within them are an infinite variety of pastels, end quote. His vision was to restore the pastel paradise that only remained in his memory. Horowitz and the Preservation League pushed for funding for the restorative painting and worked to convince building owners to allow them to test their vision on the fading white exteriors. Initial reactions were mixed, to put it kindly. One resident likened the freshly painting building to a whorehouse. Deco schmecko, many said, but building by building, color by color, the neighborhood began to turn. The pastel paradise was coming to fruition. There was another side to the influx of crime, and it wasn't in the rough alleys or decaying buildings of Miami's poorest neighborhoods. Instead, it was in the luxury hotels and nightclubs that lined the exotic Coconut Grove section of Miami. It was here that the infamous cocaine cowboys would spend their money. Cocaine was big business in Miami, and the successful smugglers and dealers needed to spend their profits. Flashy drug lords paraded around in their Corvettes and Armani suits. They tried to drown themselves in Dom Perignon. They didn't eat or sleep. Who needed to when cocaine was so pure and seemingly falling from the sky like a Midwestern blizzard? When their custom-designed fiberglass cigarette boats weren't being used to outrun the Coast Guard and smuggling dope, they raced them. High school football stars became renowned smugglers. Ruthless Marielitos accumulated drug empires. CIA-trained Cubans, stranded in South Florida, embarrassed by the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, seethed for years in Miami for a rematch with Castro. When this rematch never came, they turned mercenary and put their CIA training into use in the smuggling business. At the center of it all was the infamous Mutiny Hotel. This was the Rick's Cafe in Miami's version of Casablanca. The Mutiny's nightclub was regularly filled with, quote, politicians like Ted Kennedy, rich kids, hitmen, narcos, the CIA, snitches, party girls, local TV anchors, and Latin America's Novu rich, end quote. The good guys, the bad guys, and everyone in between carousd among the hottest names in movies and music. When the party ended in the club, it continued upstairs in the mutiny's many themed fantasy suites. Quote, with names like Gypsy Caravan, Hot Fudge, The Bordello, and Outer Space, marathon orgies were Olympian in execution. End quote. In addition to the drinks and drugs flying with reckless abandonment, so were the guns. Everyone in the mutiny was armed, and their grudges often spilled into the streets. Despite the glitz and glamour, the violence was real, and so were the bullets, sometimes in the form of machine guns unloading in a strip mall. By 1983, the era of the cocaine cowboy peaked with the release of Brian De Palma's Scarface. Al Pacino played a Marielito hooked on cocaine in more ways than one. His extravagant lifestyle and pathological violence emboldened the real cocaine cowboys he portrayed and left the rest of Miami terrified and ashamed. Every two-bit dealer thought he was Tony Montana, 
and every potential tourist thought they'd be used as target practice. Local officials winced at the thought of letting any more location shoots for movies and television into Miami. It only made things worse. Scarface had begun filming in Miami, though officials read the tea leaves and forced them out, making them finish the movie in a studio lot. But it didn't matter. The damage was already done. They were equally discouraged at the thought of another production allowed to shoot on location just prior to the release of Scarface. Like that embarrassment of the film, this show also glorified the underworld of Miami. It even referenced it by name, Miami Vice. Miami's government body made it a point to skip the show's premiere, an act of subliminal protest. They had had enough of Hollywood's depiction of Miami as a canvas of blood and violence. Little did they know that Miami Vice's executive producer, Michael Mann, and his crew had all the ingredients needed to turn the tide. Legend has it that the idea of Miami Vice began on a napkin. Seven letters scribbled on a napkin. MTV Cops. Was this true? Not really. But like most good legends, it's drizzled in enough facts to continue to exist. The true story of its origin has more to do with Miami's lucrative reputation as a center of the narcotics trade. Writer Anthony Yurkovich claims he read a Wall Street Journal article noting that over one-third of all the unreported income in the United States came through Miami. Yurkovich recalled his thought process, quote, that means one half of 1% of the nation's population is responsible for 20% of the under-the-table money. That is fascinating. Statistically, that's a 40 to 1 disparity. Any area that generates 40 times more unreported cash than the rest of the country is worth writing about, end quote. As he delved deeper into the rabbit hole of Miami's underground wealth, he became intrigued by the luxury items the local cops would confiscate from the cocaine cowboys. Forfeiture of confiscated criminal property in Miami meant storage lockers full of high-end fashion, luxury sports cars, and water sports for the obnoxiously wealthy. In order to infiltrate the ranks of Miami's criminal masterminds, the police would have to dress and act the part. The uniform would have to be traded in for Versace's and Rolex. Yurkovich fleshed out his idea of Miami as Casablanca in a pilot episode centraled around two undercover Dade County cops in the Vice Department. With the script in ink, executive producer Michael Mann stepped in to turn the concept into a product. Michael Mann brought an air of a cinematic auteur to the set of Miami Vice. He had a style and purpose to everything he shot. A film critic once wrote, quote, His storytelling is sculpted, and the shape of the narrative, with image, performance, text, editing, light, and music tailored to fit its sharp contours, provides a weighty, seemingly palpable, and three-dimensional experience that surpasses the impact and import of any single image, end quote. He was renowned for his work in the crime drama genre. His major motion picture, Thief, starring James Caan, was heralded by critics as an authentic noir take on criminals in Chicago. Mann's work was often laden with, quote, glowing screens within screens, strong lights pointing to the lens, headlights that sent horizontal streaks of light to the edges of the frame, looming auras in the background, ornamental figures that don't define, transcend, or analyze the action, and don't embody a worldview beyond that of the script, but only bejazzle his soberly grandiose manner. End quote. When approached for the job on Vice, 
Mann was initially reluctant. He had a major motion picture hit under his belt. But when he read the script, he was enthralled. Quote, I figured Miami was the perfect location for the show. It was riddled with expatriates, drugs, organized crime, and the banking center for Latin America. It had all the elements, end quote. When we hit the airwaves, we were, we were radical, to say the least. Miami Vice, drop them. Drop them. And so that meant everything from cutting styles to how it was shot to locations we went to, the clothes people wore, uh, music sound effects, dialogue. And that was the approach that we took to it, is go make a small movie in 19 days in Miami. As executive producer, Mann brought all of his expertise and attention to details to the production. The show would center on two undercover cops working vice in Dade County. Mann realized that he had a new star in the making, but it wasn't an up-and-coming actor. It was the city of Miami, and it would be front and center. But which aspects of Miami would help Mann create his magic? Well, that would be the old Art Deco district of South Beach. Like Capitman and the other activists on the initial trips to the Art Deco district, Mann's production crew was often surprised to see South Beach in such decline. Hotels were closed and in various stages of disrepair. Quote, the production team often didn't bother with permits. No one was around to object to them filming. They would swoop in and turn the decrepit places into glitzy nightclubs or elegant ballrooms. They would paint over the dark and dingy walls, turning them blue and yellow and aqua, freshening up the look and making architectural details suddenly pop out. Bikini-clad models filled the empty hotel swimming pools. Suddenly, everything looked colorful and attractive. End quote. It wasn't easy to paint this particular picture of Miami. Shooting was often 18-hour days, seven days a week. Every single frame had to have man's touches on it. Location scouts worked overtime. Everyone worked overtime. Miami might not have been quite ready for its close-up, but movie magic and the tireless efforts of the entire production crew made up the difference. What resulted was transformative to the city and to popular culture. Television was changed forever. The greatest example of this culmination in style, music, and production came just prior to the climax of the pilot episode. A revisit of this iconic scene goes something like this. A synthetic drum beat begins to thump. Slow and quiet at first, it gains steam with each note. Cut to nighttime. A black convertible cruises down the highway as the camera zooms in on the sleek, reflective chrome of the rims of the car. No other sounds can be heard but the atmospheric rhythm of Phil Collins. As our heroes cruise down the Miami highway, the streetlights bounce off the hood of the car to catch the camera at the perfect angle, exploding into artistic lens flares. As Eric Hines notes for the Museum of the Moving Image, quote, there is no evident point of view and no attempt to pretend that the camera isn't present. We've clearly entered another space and it's a goddamn beautiful space. On the soundtrack is Phil Collins' In the Air Tonight, a song that in 1985 was already three years old and passed its radio run. And yet here it is, reborn as something sublime, elevating the images it accompanies. End quote. The passengers come into view, quote, with Tubbs's profile peeking out from behind Crockett's. Two stolid profiles staring past the windshield and into the abyss of the night. Tubbs loads his rifle, and the folly metallic sound echoes as if it were happening on a stage. 
They're speeding through Miami streets in a convertible, but this is the only non-Collins sound we hear, signaling a departure from realism into a dreamy, expressive realm, end quote. Officer Crockett waves his fingers through his perfect locks dancing in the Miami breeze. His partner Tubbs smolders with the intensity of an archetypal Hollywood cop that put his badge on his desk and headed out to settle a personal score. Quote, Tubbs turns his head to look at Crockett with more eroticism than either actor would muster for the entire run of the show. A look of camaraderie, of understanding, of nocturnal heat, end quote. The sleek Ferrari Daytona Spider pulls into what appears to be a shipping yard. A lone phone booth stands in the foreground, framed by a picturesque waterfront. A neon diner sign flashes right above in a soft blue hue. The shot captures the essence of Miami Noir, which may not have even existed prior to this moment. This is a cinematic version of an Edward Hopper painting, but perfectly curated for 1980s Miami. Crockett enters the phone booth. On the other line is his ex-wife. It was real, wasn't it? It was real. Phil Collins' lyrics echo the response. You bet it was, Carol responds. Yeah, it was. You bet it was. The Phil Collins soundtrack continues. Crockett hangs up the phone and gets back into the car. He peels out of the lot, kicking up dust on his exit, speeding them toward the final confrontation with their adversary. Phil Collins also approaches his apex. Cue the most famous synth drum solo in the history of music. More footage of the highway lines passing underneath the speeding car, more lens flares. The duo eventually reaches their destination, popping out of the car and running toward a boat. The final battle begins. It's just a Phil Collins song, the poignance of it for Crockett at that moment. It just was something I knew I wanted to use that, that piece of music. Author Noel Murray describes the significance of this moment in the American lexicon. Quote, Conceptually, a decade isn't always a 10-year period that begins and ends with a year ending in one or zero. It can instead be a period framed by watershed events. Some say the 60s began when JFK was assassinated and ended with the Rolling Stones' disastrous Altamont concert. And the 70s began when Nixon was re-elected it ended when the Iran hostages were released. By that logic, maybe the 80s became the 80s when Crockett and Tubbs rolled through a dark Miami night with the street lights reflecting off their hood and hubcaps while Phil Collins' In the Air Tonight simmered on the soundtrack. If the 1980s was born in this moment, the city of Miami was reborn in this moment as well. Two fake cops were able to save a city descending into chaos. This was the magic of Michael Mann, a master magician in the Magic City. It was exciting as hell to do, and so people wanted to be in it, be on it, we wanted them in it, let's go. Playing Officer Sonny Crockett, Don Johnson became an international sensation, Miami's own version of Elvis or the Beatles. 
To men, he was the epitome of the new cool, 1980s cool. His wardrobe ignited the quote, enduringly appealing trend for white and pastel-toned linen suits from the likes of Hugo Boss, Johnny Versace, Giorgio Armani, worn with t-shirts, and jacket sleeves pushed up to expose an audacious yellow-gold Rolex." End quote. His constant five o'clock shadow inspired razor companies to offer a trimmer that left the stubble, affectionately called the Miami device. The real cocaine cowboys of South Beach began to emulate the show's fashion, and were always trying to get the TV stars over to their table at the local nightclub to share a bottle. To women, Johnson required a Surgeon General's warning for fainting when he was spotted in public. Production was often delayed as camera crews and trailers attracted throngs of young female fans, screaming at any potential appearance of Mr. Johnson. On one particular shoot, the film crew was out in an open sea, miles from the nearest shore. Johnson and the cast were on one boat, with the camera and director on another. A third boat came churning into the area. This one was packed with female Vice fans, screaming for Don Johnson. Their boat kept circling, and the film crew was forced to call Marine Patrol to wrangle them up so production could continue. But Sonny Crockett wasn't Miami Vice's biggest star, and his wardrobe wasn't the only pastel color scheme that was celebrated. In fact, since the beginning of production, Michael Mann had a credo, no earth tones. Miami, the show's real star, was filmed with the most delicate touch of Mann's cinematic genius. Miami Vice became in a sense, a 60-minute free advertisement for South Beach broadcast directly into American homes every Friday night. People wanted to come to South Beach to check out the sleek and hip city they saw on their television. Got enough vice in your life? Well, maybe it's time to put some back. Everybody free! Now you can feel the heat again with Miami Vice on home video. Call this toll-free number now for Miami Vice, the collector's edition, and recapture all the pulse-pounding action and music you remember. Step back into life in the fast lane with two hip undercover Miami cops, Sonny Crockett. Well, no guts, no glory. Ricardo Tubb. Get out of my face! Use your credit card and call this toll-free number now and get the premiere movie, two uncut hours for just $4.95 with subscription. Quote, Soon the phony nightclubs and the swank hotel that the show's designers created in all of those run-down buildings actually began popping up in real life, end quote. All of the illegitimate wealth in Miami began to be invested legitimately back into the city. Occupancy rose. Home prices rose. South Beach was on the rise. For Barbara Capitman, Miami Vice represented reinforcements in the battle for South Beach that she had so desperately fought for. Michael Mann was able to show everyone the South Beach she envisioned. She wouldn't win every fight. There were still many battles to be had. She would still have to resort to some drastic measures, including chaining herself to buildings as the wrecking balls approached. But after Miami Vice, she was no longer just a local rabble-rouser. She now had the power of public sentiment on her side. Barbara's crusade reminds me of the great words of Captain America a fitting fictional character like those of the show that saved Miami. Quote, It doesn't matter what the press says. Doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say. Doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. End quote. 
Barbara Capitman relished in her role as Captain America. Staring down the inevitable forces of change and progress, she must have felt for years she and her band of misfits were standing alone, the last line of defense between a helpless building and a fleet of bulldozers. But before the neighborhood could be demolished, reinforcements arrived. The vice squad of Dade County. Not the real police, but the fictional version. Miami Vice arrived to give her support. Together, they turned the tide of public opinion, the beauty and the feasibility of a restored South Beach could now be fully realized. Today, the Art Deco District of Miami remains an iconic neighborhood, the largest concentration of Art Deco buildings in one area, perhaps the only example of a tropical Art Deco city. South Beach is a premier destination in the world. Kappenman's activism in Miami gave rise to a nationwide appreciation of the time period. She continued her crusade to save Art Deco, up until her death in 1990. Now she is immortalized in South Beach with a bronze sculpture honoring her everlasting contribution to the city. Barbara Kapitman, a giant with the personality and resolve as grand as the buildings she championed. Sometimes you could find out more about a person from what their enemies say rather than their friends. Here's a developer in South Beach who repeatedly battled with Kapitman over the demolition of historic buildings. I made a mistake. I didn't realize that, that this was going to catch on, you know, because I didn't, I didn't see the value of the historic value of the Art Deco. As for the producers of Miami Vice, well, they had, quote, pulled off the Florida dream. They told a lie that became true, end quote. A production assistant on the show told a journalist years later, quote, the pastel shirts aren't going to last forever, but what happened to Miami Beach will, end quote. The primary source for this episode is a fantastic book called Miami Babylon by Gerald Posner. There's also a ton of articles and books on the making of Miami Vice, many of which were written in the pages of the Miami Herald. There's also the making of Miami Vice by Trish and Rob McGregor. Special thanks to Van Voorst Films for producing this podcast and to Mikey Soul for creating the music and doing this incredible rendition of Phil Collins. Until next time. <laughs>